Bega Valley Shire Library acknowledges and pays respect to the traditional custodians of the lands, waterways and airspace of the Shire in which we live, work and play, the Yuan and Monaro peoples. Hope, Loss, Resilience is a podcast series exploring how people stay hopeful, how they deal with loss and the resilience that binds the Bega Valley. It focuses on community experiences during the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, I'm Craig Garrett, a library officer with the Beaker Valley Shire Library. Earlier this year, I began interviewing people across the Beaker Valley on the far south coast of New South Wales about their experiences during the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic. What emerged from those conversations was a complex and nuanced picture. The similarities and differences in how people in a single rural shire prepared for, confronted and lived through the pandemic were telling. They give a picture of rural life during COVID that is rarely told. These stories show how the pandemic is interwoven with the realities of rural life, set against the backdrop of the recent bushfires and drought. Each episode of Hope Lost Resilience explores a different theme, fire health, education, family, community or business. This episode is the second in a two-part focus on health. In the previous episode, we heard how health workers managed a range of professional and logistical challenges in preparing for the pandemic. In this episode, we'll hear about the personal worries they faced as they tried to keep their community, family, colleagues and themselves safe. But before we start, let's hear local poet Lisa Herbert's reflections on place and home for her during the pandemic. The last girl left on the planet. During 2020 lockdown, I took up swimming every day, somewhere on the coast here. I'd often walk down through the bush and swim at nearby Wallagoot Gap on an incoming tide. Floating on my back, I imagined I was the last person left on the planet. That when I got back home, I'd learn everyone had died but me. Then I remembered swimming in this exact same place when I was a teenage girl wishing for escape and imagining everyone else had disappeared and I was the last girl left on the planet. I got excited by that even then. Imagined how I would survive alone in the bush. During lockdown, a huge swell hit the coast and moved so much sand around that all the estuaries, lake mouths and beaches changed. All the sand was pulled out of the gap the rocks exposed. It wasn't conducive to swimming. Now, the sand is coming back and I can walk through the rock wall corridor and swim again. I love the changing shape of the waterways here. It's constant all around us. So my name is Adam Woolacott. I'm a physiotherapist with Sapphire Coast Physio. So initially we were quieter and then we ended up getting busier. We definitely saw more and more non-physio issues over that period because a lot of people were scared to go to the hospital and felt that they couldn't, they didn't want to fill that up and they didn't want to take a space up from someone else. And 
the GPs themselves often weren't seeing people face-to-face and yet we were. So we would get a lot of people coming in for a bit more of that face-to-face assessment of things. The GPs were obviously seeing a lot more sicker people and needed to be a lot more careful about infection control, whereas we wouldn't see people that were sick per se. If they were sick, we would do telehealth or if they were at, say, a high risk, we would do a home visit to them. But the GPs were a bit more cautious around that quite quite rightly. The main anxiety I had was about work and in particular the risk of spreading the disease to some of our vulnerable patient groups. That was overriding incredibly uh, anxious time for all of us here. We treat a lot of vulnerable people. We, we had people that fin- were finishing chemo and coming in for treatment. And, and so we were incredibly careful as much as we could. But the reality is you can't have zero risk of spread. And I think hand sanitizer we couldn't get hand sanitizer but what i could get was i could get the ingredients in bulk through the vet clinic so we would make hand sanitizer up in the kitchen sink at night to provide hand sanitizer for our clinics it's those sort of things that yeah you look back and you're wow it's big change from our point of view the government guidelines were a little bit vague in terms of a private physio clinic which was good for us because it allowed us to make some rational decisions around where we felt the risk profile was. There was a few people we wouldn't see in the rooms. We would keep them at home and then we would send someone to them so that they weren't getting exposed to anything other than just the least we could. My name is Amelia Withers. I'm the Coastal Network Chief Pharmacist. My biggest anxiety was giving it to people. So I'm a healthy young woman and I've come to work every day and I don't know if the patients that I was seeing as a pharmacist had COVID or not. Obviously we swapped people, but COVID was a pretty lonely time. So during most of COVID, I lived alone. And so most of my friends had young children and then my parents are older. And so the people that you don't want to infect with COVID are older people and young children. And so it restricted who you got to see. But I think also I got to come to work every day and see my colleagues, whereas other people didn't have that opportunity. So they were home all the time. So lonely more in my social life, but we definitely relied on each other at work. I think the biggest stress for us was COVID vaccinations rather than COVID the disease. COVID vaccination was a huge increase in our workload. That put a lot of pressure on our staff, but we worked well as a team and we got through it. And we were very glad when community pharmacy started to be able to vaccinate because originally it was the, we were the first, the hospital vaccinated and we were vaccinating the high risk staff. And so we had buses coming down from our other sites, Maruya, Kuma, for example, and we were vaccinating them in Bega. So we would have this big influx of a couple of weeks of vaccination and then we'd have a rest and then a couple of weeks more of vaccination. So those first few rounds of vaccination was stressful. We were all learning what we were doing and we did the training, but we were learning hands-on how to manage it all. I'm Linda. I'm a specialist respiratory nurse. So in the early days was very strict criteria about who could be tested and that was mainly around 
prioritizing the groups that needed to be tested because we could only cope with testing so many people each day. So the pathology labs had to step up and we only had so much resources for testing. In those early days, the priority was testing people that had been overseas or had been in direct contact with somebody with COVID. And as time went by and we were better situated to test more, that was extended to people that were symptomatic. But in the very early days, you had to meet a fairly strict criteria. But having said that, we were very lucky in the South Coast. We didn't have very many outbreaks. But I remember in the early days, the Ruby Princess we were impacted by the Ruby Princess population. So there was people that had been on the cruise boats and people that were family or close contacts of people from the cruises. And then otherwise, as time went on, as there was little outbreaks, then we would have sometimes lots of people turning up because there'd been a positive case come through the area. So there might have been someone visiting from... Victoria or from the city and a cafe or a restaurant or a supermarket would be identified as hotspot. The next day people would present for testing and then the car park would just have queues of cars waiting to be tested and you know we'd be just out there rain, hail or shine dealing with the cars coming through. It was tricky. It was dealing with the anxiety. A lot of people were very anxious. Some people were just a little bit annoyed because they couldn't go to work until they got their test results back. So you had all sorts of reactions from people coming through. I think we were very fortunate. People were just so appreciative of the work we were doing. Those working in health and community services across the country had to be nimble and adaptive during the pandemic. But what we also see is that the experiences of workers in rural and regional areas can be very different to that of workers in the cities. I'm Jane. I'm the manager at the Bega Women's Resource Centre. As one of the few places that was open during that time, we found ourselves meeting a lot of need for the community. How we managed here in the Bega Valley, I think we did really well. I think we were lucky that people were so conscientious and there was a real sense of needing to do your best to look after other people in our community and to make sure that our own actions weren't going to contribute to the ill health or hardship of others. And I don't know if that, I couldn't say that that was just because of the fires and how everyone had come together. I think that's maybe, you know, small rural communities everywhere, hopefully banded together like that. From a work perspective, I can certainly tell you that it's been incredibly challenging, particularly early on when there was so many shifting requirements and restrictions around COVID. It felt like the ground was constantly moving under your feet and every new change meant that I had to do an entirely new COVID safe plan for for my workplace. So there was kind of these, and again, I'm a sole worker, so any level of bureaucracy is a frustration because, you know, the paperwork that goes along with it is enormous and I'm, you know, I operate a drop-in centre so um, there's just, and there's just me. Uh, so that was really frustrating, constantly having to update these plans. 
So one of the things that we do here is offer workshops and provide opportunities for social engagement for women who are vulnerable and isolated. So you'd get something planned and then all of a sudden there'd be a new outbreak or they'd shift the number of people you could have per room or you you know you can sing outside but you can't sing inside like it just kept changing all the time and it felt like it was quite maddening at times it's like you know what's it going to be when I get into work today am I going to be able to do what it was that I had planned or do I have to shift everything that was a real challenge and I'm sure I'm not the only person that experienced that particularly you know folk and hospitality and that sort of stuff it must have been nightmarish in terms of more broadly I think my worry is that some of the stuff around the vaccine mandates actually became really divisive. I think there are a lot of people who really struggled with the idea of getting vaccinated. I know here, again, we work with a lot of women who've experienced DV and for many of them, their first reaction was, no, you're not going to tell me what to do with my body. And I had many women having a really quite triggering kind of experience of, no, you can't no, you can't touch me, you can't. And that, you know, as much as logically we understand that that's not what's happening, that very visceral reaction for some women was very real. And I had one poor woman who came, it was still when you couldn't access non-essential services unless you could show your vaccine certificate on your, your phone or whatever. She wanted to buy Christmas presents for her daughter and she wasn't allowed into Big W. And she was just, you know, she was heartbroken crying like I can't get my kid presents we had some here which was lucky that was just such a sad kind of real life human experience of something that was again well intentioned of course we want people to get vaccinated but the way that it became almost a personal attack on those who for whatever reason had a personal choice not to get vaccinated that was really hard to see And hopefully there's been some learnings from that. Hopefully people are reflecting on how that was done. I deal mostly with chronic respiratory disease, so I wasn't involved with caring for people that were acutely unwell with COVID. I saw my role more as following up people in the community with long COVID. We haven't seen a lot of that in the South Coast because we didn't get the huge numbers of acute infections down here. But certainly my counterparts in the city hospitals are seeing a lot of long COVID now and they're looking at developing rehab programs for people who are still dealing with the impacts of the long COVID. I do know colleagues that were working in the first waves, particularly down in Victoria, a lot of those healthcare workers did get very sick with COVID and staffing the hospitals became very difficult because a lot of the respiratory doctors, nurses, ICU staff, they all got COVID. We didn't have protection. You know, all we had in those days was the personal protective equipment, which again, we were at that stage still working out what the appropriate masks to wear were. And it was all just evolved. You know, we, we had to work it all out as we went and that situation changed. Originally we were work, wearing surgical masks and then we were wearing the P2 masks and and unfortunately we were learning from the experiences of the city hospitals where they had the outbreaks. My name is Carly McDonald. I'm the Community Engagement Officer at Headspace Beaker. It was a really tough time actually to to try and engage community and really like do the things that community wanted. 
really concerned about the isolation factor and during those really hard lockdowns that happened like and when the office was closed everyone was working from home and the clinicians like the IT team at Grand Pacific Health really good and they put everyone on these like secure platforms to provide telehealth for young people which was really important but We also know in this community there's lots of young people who don't have access to technology, internet. So that was a real concern for us. We're like, yep, some young people like engaged in telehealth and that happened, but there was also a lot of young people who didn't as well and who we didn't really know what was happening in in that space. So, And I think there's like a lot of like people like, oh, young people are on devices all the time and they're really technologically connected. And I think what I found during the pandemic is like we tried to move a few groups into the online space and they just didn't really hit the mark. You know, I think a lot of young people just really crave that connection with human beings and being together in a space. It just made me realize again how important those like face-to-face and that human interaction is In a way, we all kind of learnt that and it really hit home for a lot of us. We also know that some young people don't have the best home lives as well. That was a real concern for us is like how we're going to support that family and the young people during this time, particularly off the back of the bushfires. And a lot of people didn't have stable homes, stable housing. And then to be told you can't go anywhere when you don't have (laughs) stable housing... And we always knew it, but it really showed the inequalities in our society as well and the way that some people experience the pandemic compared to others. A big thing for me, actually, at one stage on a personal level, I was watching the updates all the time. Gladys felt like I knew Gladys pretty well, but I found myself, you know, experiencing, you know, a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety and I kind of felt like that was increasing and I said look I just need to stop watching this every day it was kind of like and you kind of like create this kind of addiction to wanting to know the updates hour by hour which you know to be honest some days that there were updates and things were changing throughout the day but yeah it was really important for for my mental health and well-being to to have breaks from that as well and I think we'd also just like you know, the bushfires as well. So we're all quite like watching all of those updates all the time and then and then watching all the pandemic updates. So yeah, it was really important for me to take breaks and just connect back in with myself and partner and, you know, the dogs at home. On the face of it, it might seem hard to think of anything positive coming out of a pandemic. But in this next section, Beaker Valley community and health workers reflect on what their community's response to COVID has shown us about ourselves, our current and future resilience, and the importance of connection. Overall, I think the Beaker Valley has weathered it well, but I do notice that there's a real fatigue that people have, and I think that's because of that culmination of drought and then fires and then you may remember as well there were floods in there too (laughs) um yeah my place I think it was a Monday that the last evacuation that we had when our yeah got really close to our place and then a week later literally a week later we were flooded in it was (laughs) it was just it was just yeah biblical almost (laughs) it was just shit happening everywhere (laughs) And then a week after that, we had the lockdowns. 
And I really do see a lot of just sheer exhaustion from people, everyone I speak to, particularly in obviously working in the kind of welfare caring sector, there's been a lot of burden on people in our sector throughout all of that time. But as you know, we also live and work in these communities too or live in the communities that we work in and several people lost their houses and they went to work. They just pushed on and got through because, you know, you needed to. You needed to do your work and support your community but that's a really challenging thing to do when you have such a personal experience of that trauma and devastation. A lot of people are still suffering from the anxiety of the lockdowns. There's still in the population of people with chronic respiratory disease, there's still a degree of anxiety of being in crowded situations, and rightly so. There's still enough COVID around that people should still be cautious. Mask wearing in places where you can't take other precautions, I think, is still really to be recommended. I think we saw the two extremes, I guess. We saw the complacency in some populations, but I think for the patients that I see and people with chronic disease, I think the levels of anxiety were quite high and rightly so. There's certainly been positive outcomes from COVID. You certainly wouldn't want to have COVID if you had the choice, but there's certainly been some positive things come out of a bad situation, I guess, which is that people are much more aware of how diseases spread and the need to protect the vulnerable. So people not turning up to work sick anymore, I think, and visiting vulnerable people when you're unwell, I think as a population, we're just much better at that now. And that's a good outcome. Once upon a time, you know, staff members would turn up with colds and people would think that was the right thing to do. You know, I've got to turn up to work. I've got to soldier on but I think our mentality of that has changed if you're sick you should stay home and keep your germs to yourself I think that's a good thing I think our personal hygiene has really improved as a nation you know the hand washing we've still got hand sanitizing solutions everywhere so whether over time that will disappear more I guess it is a little bit now but we've all learnt a lot through this experience Another positive that's come out of it is our access to virtual care, more flexible workplaces. So certainly technology has improved and we can do a lot more virtually. I think a lot of that will stay now. I certainly do a significant part of my work is now done by virtual care. It was all virtual there at one stage during lockdown and being able to keep a component of that. Probably one of the other positives has come through is I don't think families will ever be complacent about gets togethers anymore. I think we always took it for granted that we would get together for Christmas and important occasions and it'll take us a while to get over that. I think we all just you're really appreciative now when we all get together and we've got no boundaries and no state boundaries or, or lockdowns. So I hope we never live through that again. With COVID treatments, it's obviously changed over time, but there's kind of two types of treatment. There's the oral COVID drugs, which is meant to prevent severe illness. So we're trying to prevent hospitalisation. And then there's the COVID treatments that are usually injected, which are given in hospital when a patient's severely unwell, unwell enough to need to be in hospital with COVID. And so 
when the oral COVID medicines became available, originally it was only able to be supplied by hospital pharmacies in New South Wales before it was PBS listed. So it couldn't be supplied by any community pharmacy. And so we had a virtual COVID clinic. And so the doctors would be seeing patients virtually and they could be based anywhere in Australia and they would be sending the vaccines to their closest hospital pharmacy. And so obviously that was a logistical challenge, trying to get the COVID drugs to people because like, for example, Bega, we service a large area. How am I going to get a COVID drug to someone in Malacuta? How am I going to get it to Cabago, for example? So we utilise a lot of different resources and we were very thankful when it became PBS listed and it could be supplied by community pharmacies. And so we became very reliant on our community pharmacy partners. So we had a list in the pharmacy of depending which town you lived in, which pharmacy would deliver a COVID drug for you. And so the COVID clinic might ring me and say, this person lives in Chura Beach. And I say, okay, great. Well, this is the pharmacy that's happy to deliver for them. And they keep the drug and it's ready to go. And we had a list for some of the smaller pharmacies in the Bega Valley that perhaps they don't have the drug, but they'll order it in and it'll be in the next day. But we had that list so that I could give the clinic the answer of, yes, it's here. This is how they'll get it. It definitely brought our community pharmacies and our hospital pharmacies closer together. Got to know pharmacists at all different pharmacies, which has been great. We created a Facebook group, which still runs now, so that people could talk to each other and make sure that we could look after our community. Yeah, I think the antivirals have been a game changer. If they're immunised and they get the antivirals straight away, they do very well. You need to fit the criteria so people that test positive for COVID now and are at high risk populations or I think it's over 60 now have access to the antivirals which just decrease the viral load straight away and people don't get as sick. We had antivirals that we would use for flu. They've been now developed for covid COVID is not flu, so it's yeah, it's a different technology, yeah. So we can now vaccinate, plus we can also treat. So we've come a long way, and that's why we had to lock down. That was all we had to start with was personal protective equipment and lockdowns, and that was highly successful because the idea was to lock down to protect the vulnerable until we were able to put those things in place, and Australia did that very well. I think overall the general population still doesn't quite understand how successful Australia has been if you look at the death rates in other countries that didn't have that opportunity to lock down early like we did. And the lockdowns were always there to protect the health care sector so that we could deal with the people that needed the care. So it was always locked down to make sure that the numbers in the ICUs were kept at a manageable number. Certainly down here in the South Coast, that worked very well. I know in the, you know, the city hospitals, and particularly in Melbourne, you know, their, their hospital systems were really stretched to the limit. But we didn't see that here, fortunately, and I'm very thankful for those lockdowns and keeping these regional areas where we don't have access to the amount of healthcare in the city. We were able to keep these regional areas safe. My name is Vivian Harris. One of the lovely things about the Bega Valley is there are so many people with the skills that we need 
the permaculture movement down here is quite big. There are people who know how we need to live and are modeling it and living it. And I'm hoping that that can be like yeast. And when we need to change, we can look at that, look at those people and, and use those skills. You've been listening to part two of Health, which is the third episode in Hope Loss Resilience, a Bigger Valley Shire library production. You can find other episodes wherever you find your podcasts. A huge thanks to all those stories you heard. Vivian Harris, Linda G, Amelia Withers, Carly MacDonald, Jane Hughes and Adam Woolacott. These interviews are part of the Bega Valley Shire Library's oral histories project, Talking Together. You can hear or read the full interviews, transcripts and more in the Bega Valley Shire Library's catalogue. Go to library.begavalley.newsouthwales.gov.au Or, if you're in the Bega Valley, just pop into the library and ask a librarian. If this episode has brought up anything for you, you can reach Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you're in the Bega Valley and would like to connect with mental health services, you can call free 1800 011 511, 24 hours, 7 days. You can find full links and resources in our show notes. The music you heard was Rocks and Snow by David Ross MacDonald. You can find his work at davidrossmcdonald.bandcamp.com. The poem was The Last Girl on the Planet by Lisa Herbert and the music Glitch in Reality by David Celeste. We'd also like to thank the Candelo Roadshow Radio Hour, Community Radio 93.7 Edge FM, Headspace Bega and Southern New South Wales Local Health. And additional thanks to our transcribers, Joe Osler, Alexander Masika, Trish Dive, Janet Reynolds. Project Lead and Management, Linda Albertson, Sugita Val, and that extra organisational help for all the bibs and bobs that pop up, Anita Coakley, Carly MacDonald, and Emma Woolley and Vanessa Barrett. Website design, Natalie Martin-Remmett. Scripting and podcast production, Shona Hawks. Principal production, including audio and sound design, by Craig Garrett. This program is part of the Bega Valley Shire Library's Talking Together Oral Histories Project, funded under the Joint Australian Government-New South Wales Government Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements 2018 through the New South Wales Reconstruction Authority. The views expressed do not necessarily represent the views of the New South Wales Government.